From the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, this is Stories from the Stacks. Each episode, we share new discoveries in the history of American enterprise and its impact on the world, made by researchers using our collections. So I'm Clifton Hood. I'm a professor of history at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. And so I'm here doing research for my third book, the first two dealt with New York City. The first was a history of the subway system. Um, the second was a history of the upper class in New York City. And this is history of imposters. And so what I'm really interested in, I, I guess in my career overall, are the responses that people make to rapid, overwhelming urban and economic change. Um, the first two books really dealt with this from the standpoint of elites. And so the subway was built by a mercantile elite in New York City. Um, in 1904. It's a response to fundamental problems in New York City that had to do with these people's effort to keep New York City, the, the capital really of the Western world, as they understood it. And then what happened is that the subway encountered the political process and in America that didn't feel like funding public works and an electoral process that uh, made a lot of the five cent fare, and I followed the story until it's really declined in the 1970s. And the Elites book kind of explains itself. I mean, that's a book about the upper class from the 1750s through the 1970s. Um, and the next two books, or hopefully the next two books, will look at similar general questions, but from the standpoint of maybe lower classes. Um, the Imposters book I'll talk about in a moment. I'm hoping to do a book, what I call my retirement project, that is going to be look at Pittsburgh, where I'm from. I'm from a steel town outside of Pittsburgh called Beaver Falls. And um, I'm planning on moving back to Pittsburgh in retirement. Um, and I wanted somebody to keep me busy and keep me interested, um, which may be a sign of what happens in our profession. But this is how you think of spending your time. But what I'm thinking of doing is looking at the relationship between industrial and post-industrial Pittsburgh and questioning the myth that the city has that it's made that transition really peacefully and looking at the, the core of the city and the region around it. Um, so one of the things I was doing when I was in Harrisburg, as I mentioned at the Pennsylvania State Archives, is the Pennsylvania State Police surveilled everyone. Um, and they surveilled the KKK. So I was looking at KKK membership records from my hometown, among other places. And let me tell you, that is daunting. I saw names that I recognized from elementary and junior high, family names. Um, but for the imposters, this, this in a way, I think I got onto it as a spin from the elites. So my view of the upper class was that in New York City was that the, the economy is generating change. It's generating new people who have money and who have claims or um, pretensions to status. And also you had, so, so the upper class is really in, in a dilemma because new people, it was churning, new people were coming in. They also at various times had to deal with democratic claims. I mean, so the mere fact that we use, anti, we use elitism as uh, an epitaph is a sign of that. And that's happened at various times. I mean, to be upper class, to be elitist, is to be wrong in the America of 2018. And it's been the case in, in, in various times. And so these people aspired, in many cases, to something more. Even those who were the old upper class aspired to keep something new and to keep the, the others out. Well, at a certain point, I became interested in imposters. And so these are... Um, many different kinds of people, but a lot of them are aspiring to a station that actually they don't deserve. They're faking their names. And my sense of imposters, the way I'm defining it is that 
um, imposters are people who take on the personas of others, uh, the entire personas of others, and either permanently or temporarily, sometimes those personas are invented and imagined, and sometimes they're stolen from other people. And the way I really got into it was I came up with this idea, but of course we come up with lots of ideas and most of them are really bad. And I had some extra research money, and so when I was just writing and writing and writing the upper class book, and I had my undergraduate research assistants comb through digitalized magazines and newspapers for about 100, 150 years looking for cases of imposters. And most of the work, there's actually been a lot of work done on imposters from the time Natalie Zeman Davis wrote the book about Martin Gare. But all of that has been what I would call micro-histories of imposters. I mean, it was really great. Um, so what she did, of course, was find the case of a peasant in, the, I think, the Hundred Years War, who had gone away to the Hundred Years. Somebody comes back, claims to be Martin Gare. He's accepted into his alleged wife's bed for a couple of years, and the village and the family, and then it's discovered he's an imposter. Well, and this becomes a case of a, of a huge trial, and this is, book came out, and the movie came out, at about the time when historians were interested in the lives of ordinary people. And if you're looking at the lives of peasants, well, good luck. I mean, they their life is, uh, you know, basically shit and uh, fields and no one cares whether they lived or died. But the legal records were in the archives. And, and so what a lot of people have done is done other microhistories to tell the lives of the women who fought as male soldiers in the Revolution and Civil War. So you look at gender. Um, you can look at the lives of, uh, there was a case, Passing Strange by Martha Sandwise, who looked at uh, a aristocratic white man who had a double identity as a black man. I mean, strange, indeed. And there are many cases. So instead of a micro-history, mine is a macro-history. Um, and so it turns out my undergraduate research assistants over the course of four or five years came up with something like 850 imposters. And I was blinded by this. I mean, people were faking being everything nuns, priests, commodores in the Navy, generals, uh, Rockefellers, uh, merchants, um, I mean literally everything. And I, I was bewildered and I didn't understand it, which of course is a good thing. And then I realized that Mark Twain had written five or six novels about imposters, um, starting with Huck Finn where there, it's, a, it's a set piece, but then a couple of novels just about imposters, like uh, Putin Ed Wilson, you know, race. And I thought, well, there might be something here. Um, and I started um, looking more into it. And um, a retired colleague who looks at my stuff said, it, it was hard to think of boundaries. It was hard to think of themes. It said that, okay, so what this is really about is in a nation like ours, where people pride themselves on the ability, our ability to reinvent ourselves, because that's what social mobility is. What can't you do at any one time? And how and why does that change? So the needle, how and why does the needle change? And what's driving it? And that gave me a historical question. So um, I'm relying on a lot of the evidence that my undergraduates found, but um, with that, guiding question in mind, I then went to the Dun & Bradstreet records of the Harvard Business School. Because the problem for what I'm doing is how to make it systematic. Um, 
instead of just isolated cases. And Dun and Bradstreet, of course, from about 1841 to 1842, was the first permanent credit reporting agency. And I have a friend who works in Chicago, and I was talking about what I was doing, and she had used it, um, the Dun and Bradstreet reports for a book about Chicago in the 1840s, 1850s. And she found that a lot of the Chicago, a lot of the people making big weeks in Chicago came from Middletown, Connecticut, and she discovered lots of imposters in that. And I thought, I never thought about that. So I spent a week there. Um, it's a difficult place to work, but I looked at Philadelphia, I looked at Chicago, I looked at Frontier, Wisconsin, because that's where Mary Curti wrote um, The Making of an American Community, great, great community study. It's been unfortunately forgotten. I looked at Memphis. Oh, and, and back to Philadelphia. Those who were imposters tend to be on the fringes. Um, and, you know, meaning literally they're small tradesmen or they're in the outer parts of the city. They're not the establishment types. Um, and lots of stuff about gender. And so if a, if a guy would go bankrupt, his wife will be in charge of the, the firm, will legally be in charge. And so any sign that there are women involved in mercantile establishment is a red flag to these guys. Um, and there are some women who had great firms that were really working like dress shops and stuff. And the correspondents are looking for the guy behind the skirt almost. You know, a lot of the people they were uncertain about but feared were Jewish. So you start to get, you know, currents of American life. Chicago, lots of cheating going on, lots of people. And there's no way, you know, I could say what my name is and, you know, I've got my ID in my wallet. No such thing back then. Um, no birth certificates and, you know, no driver's license. We don't have driver's license with pictures on them until after 1980. Um, and so Wisconsin even more because it's decentralized. And so then a friend suggested I look at the gold rush. Um, and I went out to the Bancroft and actually drove through the gold rush last year. Um, and there were imposters. I mean, there were, oh, by the way, people fake being everything. So in one of the things I found in the Midwest was there were serial marriage. And so somebody got married in Rochester. He, he, steal money from his wife, he'd go to Buffalo, he'd marry again, rip her off, go to Wisconsin. One guy's caught because he didn't go far enough. He went only 60 miles away in Wisconsin and tried to perform the same tr trick and he had to go to another city to register for the draft and some people from his first city found him. So in, in um, the gold rush, there are imposters. I mean, there are people salting mining claims, giving false names. There are lots of imposters on the, um, at, at Castle Garden in Manhattan selling uh, steamboat tickets to California that are non-existent. But the real thing there is crime, murder, uh, burglary, fraud. And what I discovered was, so what I think is going on is the wide open American economy gives rein to people to imagine themselves in new ways. And that means going outside the law, sometimes going inside the law. Um, but the real fear that a lot of people have about this is that the, the brakes are off and the, the hunger for money is going to lead to what we're seeing in, in California. Oh, and by the way, one of the things is when imposters are caught, but they then make good, that's forgiven because they've lived up to their reputation. And the founder of, I think, Albany, Georgia, uh, one city in Georgia, was a person who changed his name, but he made good. He was a town father. So, um, from, so I'm on leave the semester, and 
Um, I drafted the introduction. I drafted the chapter I just told you about. Um, I'm skipped over my second chapter because I can do that some summer. That, and that's going to profile four people. So for the first chapter, I couldn't go into depth about anybody because there just isn't information and there's uncertainty. So the next chapter is going to be a question of social justice. Uh, it's the working title. I'm going to start with Mark Twain. I'm going to use that to frame the fact that Mark Twain moves towards, over the course of his career, moves towards thinking that imposters are a way of challenging social norms. And so that Putin Ted Wilson um, and some others, but although he's detached from this, he, he, he doesn't want to go too far. Um, and I'm going to raise a question, to what extent is this true? To what extent do we see these people's behavior as legitimate, quasi-legitimate? Um, and right now I'm planning to have uh, look at three people in great depth. One is one of the women who fought as a man in the Civil War, um, for which letters exist. Um, another is going to be um, a man who actually defrauded Jay Gold, um, faked being an English uh, duke or something, and she and managed to cheat the cheat. Um, and so him, I'd say, is total fraud. And then I'm going to come up with a woman from um, um, Cleveland who winds up marrying into the upper crust of Cleveland, which really was upper crust, but um, then goes off the, the rails and claims that she was the daughter of Andrew Carnegie, winds up being in jail. And it's fascinating that the, the powers that be go out of their way to claim that she is a fraud. I mean, so they want to make it, I mean, to what extent is marriage imposture, you could ask? I mean, because marriage is a form of social mobility. Marriage is a form of remaking yourself. Um, and so it's fascinating how there's absolute verdict that she is nuts and that she is a criminal. I'm going to say maybe it's not quite that clear. And so then what I'm doing this book is I'm, I'm saying, so how does the needle change? Um, some of it has to do with the reaction of business and government. Um, some of it also has to do with race and ethnicity. So for a chapter down the road, I'm going to start with the papers of an anthropologist at Smith College who got away from trashing Native Americans uh, and, and other primitive types, quote unquote, to write a book about the need for better forms of personal identification because of uh, immigration. And so where does our, our personal identification come from? Where does the fixation we have with, you know, one of the things I was looking at here was a, a ID badge from uh, the Haskell Works uh, from 1915. Um, and then I'm going to talk about, uh, and this is the part I haven't researched yet, I'm going to talk about racial passing. My hypothesis is that there's a reaction among whites to the fact that fewer people are, uh, fewer African Americans are in the census every year and that the number of whites seems to be increasing. Well, they put two and two together and think, oh, light-skinned types they are. And so there is, there's a dissertation done in recent years about the origin of birth certificates. Uh, and part of the, the reason he argues is that it has to do with um, the need to uh, crack down on child labor. I mean, you have to know how old somebody is before you can say, okay, 15-year-olds can't work. It wasn't known before. But the other thing that's going on is they want to know who's black and who's not black. So if you have Jim Crow prohibitions, that in itself creates a need for a sharp line that, of course, doesn't exist biologically. Um, 
um, in, in the population. And so m what I'm hoping I find is that there's consternation among whites in the South and maybe in the North about that there are people who are passing. So right now I'm writing my third chapter. And this is going to be the working title surveillance. And the idea is, and it's right now going to have three sections. The first is uh, union spies. And so these are the Pinkerton agents who are sent in to break up the Molly Maguires in the 1870s. Uh, at the Pennsylvania State Archives, I found records of state police uh, going into the Coke region of southwestern Pennsylvania. Um, and the next section, and, and here I found documents from um, uh, that that further complicated and gave nuance to the story about Union spies. And so there are records, and, and what really struck me here was records of how Union spies had become normalized. I think it's the Empire Iron and Steel records or Westmoreland Coal. One of, one coal company wants to buy another coal company. And so Stonega wants to buy um, New River Collieries. And so they're doing all this preparation. They're sending engineers to check out the, um, what the mines are like. They're sending geologists in to see what the coal is like and how, what grade it is. And they also send in private detectives. They send in two Pinkerton agents to find out how happy the men are. And I thought, how extraordinary that this has become just part of the regular way of doing business. That floored me. Um, and let's see, for another, so for the next section, I'm, I'm looking at um, industrial espionage, so business imposters. Um, and this is, this is the real reason why I came here. Um, it's really hard to find this stuff. I got into the MetLife archives in New York City, and they have a rogues book. So these are records of either former agents who were fired or fake agents who were fired who kept going and getting um, deposits from customers. And of course, the customers discovered they, they weren't going to get insurance policies. And um, no fingerprints. No, so they had photographs of these guys. Um, and a guy at the American Express archives gave me some uh, accounts in an industrial trade journal about fake express agents. But it's really hard to get access to corporate archives, and this is the last thing that they want to show you, because it, it, they think that it puts their company to bed light, even though it's 120 years ago. Well, here we don't have that problem. And so I, I looked at the Thomas Dorma's oral history um, in the Brandywine, I think, collection, and there's an account when he's in Shanghai. He's in, in charge of the DuPont office there, and one of his assistant managers, it turns out, had presented himself as a white Russian, but he's fired when he's in the United States. It turns out he's a very red Russian, he's, and he's a Soviet agent. This is like 1920, 1921. And what he's trying to do is to get as much access as he can to what DuPont is doing in um, Asia for the Soviet Union. And I also suspect, though Doremus doesn't say this, that he's touring all of DuPont's plants in an eye to getting any chemical information he can. And, you know, I was thinking of this in light of what is going on with Russia today. We got a, a you know, a, a weak country that's very much aware of its uh, demise from the Soviet Union, aware of the economic supremacy of the West, the United States, doing everything they can undercover to make up for that. And it seems like a pretty straight era from then to here. 
And there also were accounts of trade secrets being stolen. There were cases of, um, oh, there, were, there was, it, back to the Union spies, there were cases of um, billing. And so I now know uh, how much it would have cost to hire a detective in um, 1920 or so. Oh, and there was another set of records um, that were looking at employee theft and sabotage. And so employees of the Pennsylvania Railroad, I think, yeah, in, in um, Altoona uh, and elsewhere, were stealing things, were stealing pig iron. And the managers hired the Drum Detective Agency in New York City. And they sent out, and, and there is a complete run, I mean, entire folders of reports from their undercover agents and going to great depth. And then there's a really fascinating account by, I'm guessing a former archivist here, who looked into this and gave his opinion about this, or maybe it was an MA project, it's not clear. Uh, I'll need to email somebody. And what they were saying was that, that the, they, the person who wrote this report figured that the workers got wise to this immediately. And that, that you know, you also have to wonder, given what I now know of what it cost the Pennsylvania Railroad, did Drummond really want to find the thief? Because they, I mean, they were making a lot of money through this. And there were reports almost daily for a year or so. Um, and the, um, it's just fascinating. And so here, what I'm seeing is the two sections of my chapter I've told you about aren't maybe quite as separate as I thought they were because they're also looking at, what, well, in a way it turns out, I think that some of these detectives functioned as uh, early business consultants because they're also reporting on if the work, pro it's almost like Taylor Taylorism. It's the work process is inefficient, this foreman isn't doing a good job, people are taking time off, you don't have really good security for this bank or this, you know, in town. Um, and this is some of the records I found uh, for in, when I was in Pittsburgh uh, doing research in December. Uh, Pitt's archives, Pitt's archives began as labor history archives. Actually, they're a really good connection with what you guys do. Um, and they have records from JNL. Uh, uh, Jones and Lachlan is, um, the, was the biggest employer in my home county, Beaver County, in western Pennsylvania, in a company town called Aliquippa. I'm discovering lots of company towns. And they have what they bill as uh, spy reports from JNL. It didn't quite make sense to me. And um, it turns out that what they are is the SWAC, the Steelworkers Organizing Committee of the AFL that turned into the Steelworkers Union of the, eventually the CIO, sent in their own spies. And this became clear from archives I was looking at in Pittsburgh. And so I guessed that. And so they got some of their spies hired as spies by the JNL police to show that JNL, part of, of Little Steel, was violating the Wagner Act. Because it's, it's Jones and Lachlan v. NLRB was the case that determined the constitutionality of the Wagner Act of 1935. And Philip Mur, in the papers I found at um, the Pennsylvania State Archives, confirmed that Murray was sending in spies in a lot of places. And so what Pitt has that I don't think they quite realize is a spy report from a, he's a double agent, basically. <laughs> I mean, it stunned me that yeah. that's what it was. 
And so I have the report, and, he, I mean, and, and he's telling all their secrets. Bethlehem Steel has this phenomenal story of um, the French government bought a lot of steel and a lot of armaments from Bethlehem Steel in 1914 to wage the war. But it turns out there was a sensational spy case. One of the Frenchmen who was involved in this turns out was a German agent. And he was executed after the war for being a spy. So I'm playing both with understandings of imposters and the actual imposters. And there's that back and forth. In Los Angeles, I worked at the archives of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. What I was looking at were um, records of movies about imposters, because movies are the popular entertainment of the 20th century. Well, there were 50, 60, 70, and what my basic argument is, and, and I confirmed it when I was in LA, was that the movies take this notion that imposterhood has become a form of criminality, and it's tied to race and ethnicity in bad ways, and they cement it. Thank you for listening to Stories from the Stacks. For more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society and the Hagley Museum and Library, visit us online at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G.